0: Everyone, welcome to the Charvak podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. All right, today's discussion is designed and created by Sri Abhijit Ayer Mitra. So, when we were on Sham Sharma's show, Abhijit ordered me a hey, Kushal discussion, and we are doing the discussion as Abhijit had ordered. So, today's discussion is why India couldn't defeat the Turkic invaders. So, Abhijit. I don't need to welcome you because you're a regular member of the podcast. So here's my question. First up to you, why do you think this topic per se deserves a detailed analysis?
1: It deserves a detailed analysis for two reasons, because it shows you what an important role dependence on imports military thinking, not adapting your strategy to what is available and pining after imports, as well as the caste system inflict on you. Okay, useless division of labor inflicts on you. And, you know, it is still such a relevant lesson, it's not
0: even funny. Okay, so now uh, let me lay it out like this, right? So so my first question to you is going to be, so India has had, I'm not going to get into the controversy of whether there was an RN invasion or not. I'm going to leave it aside because I'm someone who's skeptical about it. So let's leave that aside. But India has had a series of invasions, right? India has had invasions over a period of at least 2,500 years and India even had, you know, we cannot deny that the people from the Pontic steppes did enter India because genetics is clear on that. Whether it was an invasion or whether it was assimilation is a separate issue. But there have been series of people coming in fra- coming into India. Well, the first set came 70,000 years ago, which are the Andamanese, you know, the original people. Then we had a significant uh, entry into India 7,000 years ago, and then there is a series of people who have come into India. So we need to decipher what was an invasion and what was just a migration of people so within invasions why do we focus on the turks because there have been the british who have come into india so let's say if i was to ask you what is so unique about the turkic invasion say in comparison to the british Hmm. so uh look we're
1: all africans right we all came out of africa so it doesn't matter where we come from our Ancestor was a chimpanzee in the, well, some kind of a chimpanzee in the Rift Valley in Kenya. Now, why are the Turks different? Because remember that Muslim Turks weren't the first Turkic people to invade us. We think the Shakhas and the Hunas were, uh, you know, kind of somewhere related to those steppe nomads. There, There was certainly anybody coming in from the steppes. Would have the same lifestyle. Okay, essentially, they would be part of a similar lifestyle continuum. So, what happens here is why are these people different? Because they never absorbed into society, they constantly had a foreign uh, identification. Uh, instead of looking at india as a culturally superior country and adapting to being indian very very quickly they were persianate and they never actually adapted to a sedentary lifestyle in that sense you know the combat uh, the idea of running the economy based on a robin shaft you know uh, a, a, a a a war economy a combat economy where all uh, uh you know surpluses are gained through raiding your neighbors uh becomes much much more acute during this period right so you look at the previous the only real i mean the shakhas it's still out there uh shakhas may not have been turkic even though they're from the pontic steppes, but the uh uh, uh the uh, uh hunas Toroman and Mihirakula, even the name itself has a very Turkic ring to it. But they say Mihirakula and uh, Toroman were great Shiva Bhaktas. Right. So they, they, they may have been nasty, cruel people because that is the way step warfare happens. That is why there is a certain connotation. Why is it that you don't associate the cruelty of the Shaka or the Huna invasions with, say, the Kushans, who were also from, say, Uzbekistan or northern Afghanistan, which is a kind of like a continuum. So clearly, there is something to do with nomadic populations, their lifestyle, their type of warfare, where these differ from the Shakas and the Hunas is just the sheer rapine cruelty the indoctrination, the ideology uh, and the economic mismanagement.
0: So here's the thing, Abhijit. So before the Turks, right, there were people who came in, but we were able to defeat them. And the ones who came in, they kind of assimilated into the society. It was not like, so so even in fact, uh, uh, I don't want to piss people off, but even when the Greeks came in, the ones who stayed back eventually assimilated into Indian society. They, they became a part of us. Uh, in fact, uh, there's a beautiful book by Thomas Machiavelli, The Shape of Ancient Thought, that actually talks about the philosophy, the Greek philosophy and Indian philosophy, how... India influenced Greek philosophy. Uh, most people don't realize that Greek monism is not original. It is actually influenced from the Upanishadic thought. Uh, so Parm- so anybody who reads Parmenides, like I'll give you, when I was reading my philosophy books and, and I started reading Parmenides, I was like, hang on, this is like Gaudapada's uh, Advaita all over. I mean, what is so different? And then I dig, d- started digging more and more and more. And I was like, oh, so he from here. But then I also realized that the Greeks also gave us a lot of things like astrology. Like the first book itself is called Yavana Jataka. Now this mm-hmm. happens with everyone. But something goes all right with the Turks. They do not absorb and we also do not defeat them. So why are these two factors so unique in these people, the Turks? So this is where we have to separate ethnicity from religion.
1: Right. So you look at when the Greeks invaded the accounts of Alexander's invasion. Now, I'm just setting aside if Porus won the Battle of the Hydaspes or Alexander did, because that's another minefield I don't want to get into here. But what happens is Alexander coming here. He actively seeks out Indian philosophers, right? He goes to temples of, supposedly goes to a temple of Krishna and worships him as his ancestor, Hercules, right? You look at the Greeks, even after the Greek invasion of Egypt, you know, uh, Alexander was, Alexander accepted the uh, uh, Egyptian gods, he was uh, uh, seen as the pharaoh of Egypt. They worshipped, even his uh, successors, the Ptolemy, uh, uh, The Ptolemies, they worshipped at Egyptian temples. There were great bhaktas of Ra and Osiris and uh, uh, Hathor and things like that. And you look at the way pre-Christian Mediterranean religions synthesized each other. Rome, when Greece then becomes a Roman province and Egypt becomes a Roman province. Uh, You know, Venus, Roman Venus is seen as Greek Aphrodite, who is seen as Egyptian Isis. They were all interchangeable. You didn't go around destroying each other's temples. You cherished each other's cultures. You didn't have any qualms about absorbing each other's cultures. Right. In fact, the word Christ and hero, Greek words, uh, are of Indian origin. People don't realize this, but you know, uh, Christ, uh, technically Christ's name is Yeshua bin Yusuf, uh, uh, Jesus, the son of Joseph, right? And the word Jesus Christos is Yeshua, the anointed. Christos is anointed. Where does that come from? Ghee. So ghee, Mm -hmm. when we used to use it in our homas, you say the prayer holding ghee in your hand, you pour Mm -hmm. it into the sacrificial fire so that it goes up into the... uh, Uh, heavens Mm -hmm. but this is now holy ghee so what you Mm -hmm. do is you put a tikka off there and that is the anointing process so Mm -hmm. grita gray asta okay gray old word for ghee asta Uh, you've been anointed that slowly becomes christ in greek hero is Mm -hmm. the same as viria Mm vira hero right Mm -hmm. now the old world was completely syncretic. Imagine Persia which should technically be de- demon worshippers for us. We were demon worshippers for them. They, they literally worshipped the Asuras. We literally worshipped the Devas. For them, Devas are the Asuras. Uh, devas are the demons. Yeah. yeah. They don't come around destroying our temples. We don't go around destroying the fire temples. Yeah. Right. So wh- what's happening out here? Right. So there's clearly something that uh, is different. And this is where it is not the ethnicity that's important. This is where the banal influence of monotheism and specifically Islam in this case, plus the inferiority complex of a lesser Muslim comes in. Because, you know, remember, when the Arabs invaded Persia and the Arabs mm-hmm. invaded Egypt, they actually went to extra lengths to prevent people from converting to Islam because that means you don't have to pay the jazia number one. Mm-hmm. And what then happens is if you convert, the revenue of the state decreases because you're not getting jazia. Because when you don't pay jazia, uh, you, know, you, you substitute military duty. And they didn't want a non-Muslim doing military service and therefore undermining the state. What if a non-Muslim acquired power kind of thing? So it had several Mm -hmm. elements to it. But the moment the Turks become Muslim, what you see is you have a particular expansionist ideology, a sort of, uh, you know, a uh, uh, not just expansionist, also a... uh, uh, a proselytizing ideology uh exclusivist means uh exclusivist yes but more proselytizing mm-hmm. because see they want to absorb you mm-hmm. and you see that in the way the turks adopt persian at one point of time persian used to be the official language of the ottoman empire as well Th- there were almost no turkic empires that did not adopt Persian as their official language. We'll come to that later on in this podcast. So we'll talk about how the Ottomans shifted from Persian as the language of governance to Turkish as the language of governance. Mm -hmm. Um, But what happens here is you have a lifestyle that needs expansion, that needs raiding, that needs cruelty, Mm -hmm. meet with a theology that perfectly suits that ideology because remember, Arabia was very similar. You look at Arabia and you look at the Pontic Steppe. They are both ideal for horses. They are both prone to extreme climate change and de- uh, 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 climate change induced depredations. They are both highly prone to uh, 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 resource constraints and consequent raider economies. You know, Raub und The Arabs, on the other hand, civilized very, very, very quickly. They -hmm. became sedentary extremely rapidly. The Turks did not. And why? Because there were consistent pressure coming. It was way, we don't know why. It starts Mm -hmm. off sometime around the 4th century AD when another branch of the Huns attacks uh, 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 Germany and Europe and the Roman Empire and from there on, there is clearly some climate change happening the 4th century, se leke, 12th, 13th century. Tak, there is constant population pressure happening from the Altai mountains, westwards hmm. and southwards. Right. So now what is the cause for this? Is it it's probably climate change, we think, but. There's no establishment of what it is, primarily because these were all illiterate tribes. They didn't have a script. There is no archaeological evidence of them because, you know, nomadic people will seldom have archaeological remains and things like that. So we don't really know what to do about it. Uh, And there's constant population pressure, push, 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 push. So all of these get into a very um, toxic combination in that sense. Plus this belief that Persian is somehow superior to native indian uh uh, uh forms and that exclusivism exclusivity also comes from their conversion to islam
0: yeah, so that's very interesting because uh, I've uh, heard many people talk about this, which I've always found it very hard to digest that, you know, whenever you talk about uh, exclusivism of monotheism, you know, for the ones who don't like monotheism, eventually, actually, you know what, they put uh, everything on, actually, uh, I mean, I understand that monotheism is a byproduct of Zoroastrianism in a very weird way. Anybody who has read the Zen Divista will understand that. I mean, uh, it, it's it's kind of uh, understood where, but, but from where but, they go. But, shall we need to... We need to be very careful that you know
1: Zoroastrianism is uh henotheistic, it's not monotheistic, yeah,
0: yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, That's what I was gonna say. So it's actually unfair on them to blame it on them. But, but then here's my point,
1: Abhijit. What you can blame it on is Atenism in Egypt, yeah, Uh okay. Because remember, Akhenaten is the world's first monotheist. Mm -hmm. And like the world's first monotheist, he displays extraordinary intolerance. It's one of the most horrific periods in Egypt's history to Mm -hmm. such an extent that his own son, Tutankhaten, has to change his name to Tutankhamun and authorize the destruction of every one of his father's monuments, has to completely flatten his father's capital, orders his father's name to be scrubbed out of every monument, chiseled out of every monument, and the hatred mm-hmm. lasts so much that Horimheb Tutankhamun's general, who takes over after killing Tutankhamun, has to wipe out even Tutankhamun's name, even though Tutankhamun had converted back from Atenism to Amunism. Mm-hmm. And Akhenaten starts off as a Henotheist when he is in co-regency with his father. The moment he becomes the sole pharaoh, he changes over to absolute. Uh, uh, monotheism mm-hmm. monotheism breeds fanaticism okay this is more. Um, right. I, I I don't know I, I can't prove co- uh, causation but there is a very very strong correlation nothing else explains the Amarna period in uh, the Egyptian New Kingdom
0: yeah so now let's get into the sociological factors and now I think is the perfect time to discuss the one thing which I believe has to be the single most so now because you said we want to talk about language too so let's now let's take this section of the podcast and let us talk about the Persian language it's very ironical now right now i'm uh you know on on patreon i'm actually discussing uh this book uh called the indo-european uh you know controversy facts and fallacies and it's obviously on linguistics and how language is adopted and here's the thing Abijit so try and understand my point of view you know a lot of claims that linguists make Are actually not on very firm ground. Uh, This is not, this is not, I'm not trying to play the out of India hypothesis up. I am genuinely agnostic and anybody who knows me will know that. But the point is that a lot of times, you know, they, they give you these ideas like the elite hypothesis. Is the elite hypothesis somewhat plausible? Yes. But there are many cases in the history of the human race where the elite hypothesis does just does not work where you know a lot of times the the, the people who invade um la- landmass they end up taking the language of the people of that landmass and they don't adopt uh, that language but having said that what is so unique about the Persian language? Because I want to get into many more sociological factors. So let's first discuss language. Because I believe in this entire uh, entire discussion, I believe language plays a humongous role.
1: So uh, several uh, 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 reasons. See, there is a certain trajectory in the way languages get absorbed. So for example, when you have the actual, Anglo-Saxon invasion of Celtic, Gaelic Britain, uh, Celtic gets wiped out completely. British becomes a 100% Germanic language to such an extent. This is why, you know, the story of the Viking raids on uh, 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 Britain are such complete bullshit. Because, you know, the British at that time were completely intelligible word for word to the invading vikings because the anglo-saxons came from the same areas that the vikings came from right Uh, just a few hundred years earlier so the languages hadn't uh, uh diverged that much it was maybe like speaking bengali and hindi which are kind of mutually almost completely intelligible or say marathi and hindi or punjabi and hindi right so what happens there is first wave completely replaces the second wave but then when you have the anglo uh, when the norman invasion of britain happens you see something very different it's the invader that slowly adopts the language of the invaded of the occupied the occupier uh, 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 adopts the language of the occupied but The language of the occupied changes so much that even today, 45% of the vocabulary of English is of French origin. Right. So in simple majority, English is actually technically, it would be a Romance language in my classification, not a Germanic language. So now let's look at how this works with the Turks and Persia. Now, Mm -hmm. remember, the Arab writing script... Prior to this, was an Aramaic script, and it was very similar to the Aramaic script that Persia used. So you look at the earliest Quran ever written, which is which we know that has been dated. I actually had the honor of seeing it in uh, uh, Tashkent. It's kept in the museum, and it's still it's opened on the page where Caliph uh, Uthman was killed because he was he was supposedly reading this Quran. And his head was smashed in with a skull or a sword from the back, and the uh, you, the blood stain goes like that across the Quran. I've actually tweeted an image of it, one of the pages of it. I actually want you to go check my Twitter timeline on this. I have an image of that thing opened up. That's written in Kufic. Okay, that was the Aramaic native to Kufa in Iraq. That becomes the script of Arabic. So remember what we call the Arabic script is actually an Iraqi script. It's an Iraqi variation of Aramaic that the Arabs used to use to write their language before. But what's more important is Aramaic was also the written script of the Persian empire. So in that sense, the Persianization of the Arabs happened extremely early. Why? Because when a nomad meets a civilized empire, with a large bureaucracy, extremely well-heeled government, bureaucracies tend to absorb the same way Narendra Modi has eff- effectively become the head of the IAS. You know, the joke is that it's a IAS government with outside support from the BJP. It was kind of like that. It was sort of a Persian government with military support from the Arabs in that sense, which is why you have Arabs complaining very early on that, you know... Uh, these people they ran their empire without a single arab for a thousand years we can't run our empire for a single day without a persian running it so yeah. it, it's, the, it's the absorption it is not the persian language it is not the uh greatness of persia per se it is the persian ias it is the persian bureaucracy that reverse conquers the arabs and why was it the Persian bureaucracy and not the Byzantine bureaucracy? Because remember, Byzantium had a very efficient bureaucracy in uh, the Levant, so the Holy Land, Syria, uh, Israel, mm-hmm. as well as in Egypt, which mm-hmm. was also a Byzantine province at that point of time. Why? Because they didn't control the imperial capital. They didn't capture Constantinople. You need mm-hmm. to capture mm-hmm. the central government in order to absorb the bureaucracy. Mm hmm. Otherwise, like bureaucrats are trying to constantly, you know, bring down the Modi government or hobble it in some way or form, because we all know all these journalists are bureaucrat baches. uh You will have the same thing. You will have the same bureaucrats doing to the Modi government what the Byzantine bureaucrats did to the Arab government, which is why they had to be replaced wholesale. On the other hand, when you capture the entire Persian bureaucracy, the state of governance, Mm -hmm. the changes are very profound. Then comes the glorification of language. Mm. Now, remember, the language, it's it's quite surprising because what happens is in Persia during the Parthian period, the Arsacid dynasty that ended, what, around 250 AD or around that much, uh, they used to speak a lot of Greek. Greek had kind of colonized the Greek mindset. Greek plays had colonized Persia. And the Sassanids pushed back against that very, very, very strongly. The Sassanid period was a period of uh, uh, religious renaissance where Zoroastrianism turns very intolerant, unlike the Achaemenid and the Parthian period. And it also turns very uh, linguistic nationalistic so what happens here is it's that glory of iran kind of thing which the persian bureaucracy indoctrinates into you that the turks come into and because these guys are muslims and the iranians are the one who civilized. so iran and turan turan is Kazakhstan, uzbekistan turkmenistan kyrgyzstan tajikistan uh, parts of northern afghanistan so iran anyway had a significant linguistic influence on Turan by that point of time. So it was just a question of adopting religion in addition to already adopting their language, which had become sort of the lingua franca of that particular Iran Turan region. Right. This is the root of Persianization. But look at the trajectory that this takes. It's it's very, very curious. Iran and Egypt are two countries that for the last 2000 years have seldom been ruled over by Iranians or uh uh, uh Egyptians they've actually been ruled over by Turks so you know Turks, yeah, actually that's out of 1400 true. years of muslim, so out of 1400 years of muslim history only about 200 to 250 years are arab history The remaining 1,250 years are Turkish history. So much so that Egypt becomes a Turkic state in 850 AD, the Tulunids take over. And this is, you know, the slave uh, uh, soldier system where you capture slaves, sell them off, and they become your military slaves. Iran had a brief interlude after the Sassanids. It's called the Iranian intermezzo, which again happens around 850 with the Buyids and the Samanids and things like that. But except for those 100 years and the Fatimid Caliphate immediately after the Tulunids, so slight 100-year gap, 100-year gap, it's foreign rulers all over again. So Egypt by this time, for 2,000 years, more for about Egypt, for at least for 2,500 years, has not had an Egyptian ruler till Abdel Gamal Nasser takes over. Hmm. Imagine a, a civilization like Egypt not having a native son of the soil, ruling it for 2,500 years. Persia is different. After the Sassanids, you have a 70 to 100 year Iranian intermit. So all their other rulers, the safavids the Qajars, uh, uh, the uh, uh, Nadir Shah, the Af- uh, Nadir Shah is called the Afrashid uh, Dynasty. They are all Turks, not one. They are all from Turan. They are not from Iran, right? So what happens is this comes to an head during the Safavid Ottoman period. These are both essentially Turkoman tribes. So Western Oghuz. So if you look at the Turkic languages, there's Kipchak, which is the north, which is Kazakhstan. There is Karluk, which is the eastern uh, Turkic languages, that is Uyghur and Uzbek. And there's Turkoman, Oghuz, which is uh, the western Turkic languages, which is Turkmen, Turkoman, uh, uh, Azeri and Turkish proper. Now, what happens here is you have the Seljuk empire that comes around 900, 800, 900 AD, which is basically combines Persia and Anatolia. So Turkey and Persia. And what happens here is that the language becomes Persian. Right now. So the Seljuks are not part of the Iranian national memory they are part of the Turkish identity, the modern Turkish identity and the modern Turkish identity uh, uh, memory, even though none of the Seljuk capitals was actually in Turkey, all the Seljuk capitals were bloody in Iran. Right? So what happens is when this fragmentation happens, you finally around the 1400s you have the uh, Osmanli, uh, uh, the ottoman empire and the safavid empire which are fighting for control for what was once seljuk territory what happens here is on these are both turkomans turkoman tribes essentially uh, and what happens is one is shia the safids one is sunni but they both speak Turkic. They are both actively trying to proselytize each other. And the safavids are defeated very, very badly at the Battle of Chaldiran. And what happens after that is particularly interesting. The Battle of Chaldiran is so important in terms of how the national identities of Turkey and Persia. It, it was actually a gift to Persia because then it started the de Turkification of Persia by a Turkic dynasty. Why? Because you both Turkomans, how do you differentiate yourself? Because your ordinary people are by Yebi Turkoman hai, wobi Turkoman hai. This is a choice between Turkoman and Turkoman. Ye Shia hai, Ye Sunni hai. What is the additional differentiator? In Europe, it was the 1300s and the 1400s, remember the Hundred Years War, that consolidated the French and the British national identity, the linguistic identity. And it's not that these two countries actually studied that model, but it happens simultaneously in this part of the world as well, that Turkey actively decides it wants to de-Persianize its leadership. And so within about 50 years of the Battle of Chaldiran, they change over from Farsi, Turkish as the language of the state. And it sent shockwaves in India because the Indian Sultans and co. could not believe that a Turk would be so uncivilized as to make Turkic the national language. It, it, It was actually a court scandal in India. A hundred years later, the Mughals were complaining about this, saying they've gone back to Jahiliya and shit like that. Right? In Iran, they're very proud of their language. So what happens is there is this deliberate emphasis on de Turkifying the Turks in Iran. The way they separate themselves is to draw back that lineage to their pre-Islamic heritage and show it as continuity. So the religious nationalism solidifies. But also what happens is a concocted Persian identity starts coming about even though none of the rulers are Persian. So these are the two parallel processes you see purely as a result of coming out because of the Battle of Chaldiran and its consequences thereon. What's particularly interesting in all of this is you start seeing the change in art and that is particularly interesting. You look at the early Persian miniatures, say starting from about uh, 800 to about 1,200, 1,300. And Seljuk and Ottoman art as seen in tile work and things like that, but also in manuscripts. All the people depicted, all the kings and queens depicted have Sinitic features, Mongol features. There's, the slant eye is very, very pronounced in all of them. OK, so the Sinitic, but sometime around the 1400s, the portraits change, right? They, none of them have these Mongol features anymore they start having the features you associate today with modern-day Turkey and modern-day Iran, which is not Mongol, right? Even though the ruling class remains Turkic and claims a Turkic heritage. So you're seeing all these processes happen. Now, very important in this entire process happening is what's happening in India at this point of time, right? Because we're not facing this do or die battle, we're not facing this sort of battle for supremacy over a contiguous whole, the Turkish identity remains the Turkish identity. It never changes. So imagine you're in this country, you start in 1192, and right up to the end of the Mughal Empire, you are fixated with your Turco-Mongol identity. And you know, it's it's very curious watching programs like Ertugrul because they actually show you oh, these horrible Mongols coming in and you know, killing all our people. And we are so different. All the Turks are shown as modern day Turks, all the Mongols are shown as Mongols. That is such a joke because the bulk of the Mongol army was Turkish. The Mongols were actually something like 15 to 20% of the Mongol army. The bulk of it was actually Turkish. It was actually Turks fighting Turks. So, you know, there's this joke after the second world war in the cold war, because all the German scientists were split. Russia took a number of German scientists and America took a number of German scientists. So the Russian space program and the American space program were started by captured German scientists. And the joke was it was my Germans versus your Germans. And that's what the entire bloody Mongol invasion was it was my Turks versus your Turks. The Turks did the most of the dying and the fighting. So there's actually these cases when Genghis Khan is destroying the Khwarezmi empire. When some of the cities surrender, they're astounded that they've been ordered to be slaughtered because they're like, dude, we're Turkish like you. How are you ordering a cut? They can't get it. So it's, 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 these are the dynamics happening out there now let's get to the military because mm-hmm. mr lee in the comments makes this point which we're going to hit on we didn't have enough horses horses were a luxury mm-hmm. that's the thinking that led us to lose so mm-hmm. kushal you frame it any way you want but we need to get in the military no side no so
0: so stuff. so yeah so before i get into the military side of things i, I still want to stick to one aspect of the sociological thing so we have discussed the sociological factors outside india but look whenever you invade uh, there are multiple variables even within the sociological realm there are variables outside India but there are variables inside India there has to be something that was brewing in India which has to make India into a particular basket case where if A type of person comes from outside. Yes, I get it. There is the military factor. And we will get to the military factor. But there are certain sociological and societal realities that enable this kind of an invasion, and it can Ex-outsider can come in and take advantage of, uh, you know, inside realities. Now, people hate me whenever I point out to the, you don't want to call it caste, don't call it caste. You can call it Jati Varna or whatever. But there is a reality out there, which even genetics proves that India is, I mean, not a, it's it's far less now. But India had, in my view, uh, after the, the Jew, you know, the Hasidic Jews, I think we have the largest endogamous population in the world where people just don't marry outside their jati which is extremely weird i mean i don't know how we have pulled it off but at least the genetic data from the last 2000 years clearly says that so in a scenario like this where you have a society that is in becoming increasingly rigid i am not saying that it was as rigid 2000 the start point of year two thousand, before the two thousand years before this, or till when the Turks come. But the point is, and I am even willing to concede that the Turkish entry even accelerates this uh, endogamous uh, thinking in our society. But the point is, we did have fissures. So, how much of the role does this jati-varna matrix make it uh, easier for the Turks in uh, coming into India?
1: So, I don't know if it accelerates it or if it enters at a point where it's already accelerated. Because remember, during the Maurya period and the Gupta period, we have mentions of caste and some caste discrimination as well. But it doesn't seem as endemic as it becomes during the Harsha period. Okay, during the Harsha uh, Vardhana Chalukya period. Now, clearly what's happening is at this point, a large part of society is getting stratified based on caste, number one. And that's never a good idea when your opponent runs a kratocracy. What is a kratocracy? Might is right. So, you know, what happens is there, if a leader dies, the next leader is as good of a military leader as the previous leader. They have built in redundancy mechanisms. And in fact, when the top leader is killed, treacherously betrayed by his successor, it usually means a successor is even better militarily than the guy he replaced. So you see this with, you know, the Battle of Ayn Jalut, where it's the first proper defeat of the Mongols uh, by the uh, Turkic army of Egypt, by Sultan Kutuz, And he is killed on his way back by Baybars. Baibar's Bandukdari, the first person known to have owned a gun, the first king to have known, known to have owned and operated a gun, hence Bandukdari, Rukhnuddin Baibar's Bandukdari. And this is accepted, which is why the Delhi Sultanates are so unstable. But notice, even in the Delhi Sultanates, each successor, is just as military capable as the, more or less as militarily capable as the predecessor. So you have Kutbuddin Ebak, who's extremely successful, Iltutmish, who is even more successful, then you have two or three useless rulers, and then you have Balban who is extremely successful, then you have few more rulers, and then you have the uh uh Kiljis who are again extremely successful. Right, so th- there is a ossifying society in India that is not promoting based on merit or power, but rather based on birth, confronted by an extremely violent, brutal society, which is promoting based purely on military virtue. Jaha Hatya is accepted, it is accepted, it is societally accepted for you to kill the Sultan in order to gain power. So, you know, when Genghis Khan is destroying the Khwarezmi empire and Jalaluddin Mingburnu, who is the Khwarezm Shah's uh, son, comes into India and he asks Il for uh, asylum, Il says, you know what, The our ancestors believe that might is right so if genghis khan is defeated and destroyed you it clearly means you're a rotter who deserves to be defeated and destroyed so, you know iltushmish didn't even feel that particular kinship with jalaluddin ming because he possibly saw the mongols for exactly what they were which is a turkic army so for him it was like abdul and abdul fighting Abdul Abdul ki, uh, hai, Abdul ko okay you so this is one aspect so caste plays a very important role in this the, an ossification of society versus an extremely dynamic society now you know if you want to put this another way a traditionalist would get very angry with this classification and he'd say Ours was a traditional society and theirs was an immoral, violent society. Also true. But that is the price you pay for tradition. Understand that. That was purely a meritocratic society, not economically meritocratic. They did not know how to run the economy. Fine. But they knew it was a military meritocracy. This is number one. Keep this at the back of your mind. We don't know what's happening between the 4th century and the 7th century. We know there is massive de-urbanization in North India. There is, and we don't know what this is. is it's the climate change related event that every empire has de-urbanized by this time. Rome has de-urbanized. Byzantium has de-urbanized. Sassanid Persia has de-urbanized. India has de-urbanized. There are cities. Don't confuse having cities with de-urbanization. They're two completely different things. You have great cities like Mathura, but you are de-urbanized. We don't know why this is happening, but it's happening. And there is unicentrism. Because invariably, barbarians are always militarily more flexible than a sedentary civilization. This is one more thing that's happening. Now, what is caste exacerbating? Caste exacerbates peacockery. And by peacockery, I mean this need for status symbols associated with your caste. And in this case, what is the status symbol do you think that's associated with caste superiority?
0: Yes. Hmm. Very hard to think at that point of time. Tell me. Think. It's Vedic, man. Well, I mean, I think it's just a purity and pollution issue if you think. Uh, no. Militarily. Oh, militarily is very hard. It's just, I can't think the of The horse. It right oh, yeah. yeah. The okay, horse. Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Because
1: you're elevating. Somebody over the ordinary foot soldier. So it's a sign of caste and status superiority, number one. Mm -hmm. Number two, remember, we don't have meadows, so we don't have horses. We were were never able to produce horses in India, which is why even in the Rig Veda, horses are the sacred. They are the animal of the Rig Veda, not the cow, Mm -hmm. the horse. The horse Mm -hmm. is venerated above everybody else. Ashwa, 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 Ashwa. Tunga. Mm. Right. And that is why the horse sacrifice, the ashwamedha Yagya, is such an important thing because everything is compared to the horse. Mm -hmm. It is rare. It exists, but it is extremely rare.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And now it turns this obsession with the horse turns suicidal Mm -hmm. because this is where you start relying on a military import. Mm-hmm. and instead of optimizing your infantry strategy which is always what you were good at you go mm-hmm. in the f- for the foolishness of cavalry tactics which you do not which you do not have
0: mm-hmm.
1: right it's the only other kind of cavalry you have is the elephant core but elephants aren't as disciplined as horses Elephants tend to panic very easily. You can't control their panic reaction, unlike a horse. A horse can be trained out of its panic reaction. An elephant cannot be trained out of its panic reaction. It Then the elephant will turn around and crush its own troops. So elephants mm-hmm. have always been a very mixed bag, unlike the horse, which never has. With a horse, mm-hmm. all you do is you can actually charge a horse off a hill or directly to impale itself on a stake because you put blinders on it and you just say dodo mm-hmm. and it trusts the rider enough and it will impale itself on a stake it'll be too late then it can't move back then right or if you are fallen off a hill there's nothing you can do horses are mm-hmm. fundamentally much more reliable so what happens is why is it we know maharana pratap's horse's name what was the horse's name chetak na no? chetak exactly mm-hmm. uh Tell me, do you know Porus's horse's name? Do you know Ashoka's horse's name? Do you know Chandragupta Maurya's horse's name?
0: No, but Porus, you know? I, I had Gupta. read it.
1: No, I did not. So imagine for a animal that is so important in the Rig Veda. It shows you how all are up to that medieval period. Horses were not the core of your military strategy. Infantry and bows and arrows were. That Mm -hmm. is why Indian metallurgy developed so well as a counter-cavalry strategy. Mm -hmm. That cavalry-based bowmen should not be able to defeat you. So you needed to have an extremely good shield that could withstand arrows. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And your metal had to be better because you had an infantry-based strategy. Okay. Yep. And mind you, infantry does a brilliant job holding against cavalry. It's mm-hmm. a question of sheer courage if you're able to hold your dhal and your spear, begin, mm-hmm. in which case cavalry charges fail. The problem is cavalry charges succeed purely because of human psychology that you panic, you move back, the line breaks, and then the cavalry gets through.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: After the initial clash, which is bloody both for the horses and riders as well as uh, infantry.
0: And you look at the Battle of Tarain. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Then I'll make my point. No, no, make your point. I'll I'll add something later on. So you look at the Battle of Tarain. Very curiously, the Indian
1: strategy is an infantry based strategy Mm -hmm. that fails Mm -hmm. miserably. So you're even, and and this is the problem which comes in that when you have birth-based lineage versus a military kratocracy So see how everything's coming together. Mm-hmm.
0: Hmm?
1: You can you can still adopt an infantry-based strategy and still lose if you're faced with a militarily superior kratocrat. So it, it's a it's a, it becomes a combination of several things. And then horses take on a life of their own. This is why you are not able to withstand even Turkic rulers of Delhi. Are not able to withstand further Turkic invasions that come in. We are not able to withstand Timur. Was a uh, was a Turkic dynasty. Why did they fail so miserably to Timur? Right, Mongol, uh, the Mughals were a Mongol dynasty. Why did they fail so miserably to Nadir Shah? Mm-hmm. And there's a problem out here. Why does the Vijayanagar Empire constantly want to hire Turkic horsemen? It's because you've created the psychology that Hindus can't win. Horses are essential for victory. You've misdiagnosed the problem, which is the Turks are winning because of horses. Therefore, you want horses. Plus, horses are a status symbol to elevate our elites above the foot soldier, etc., etc., etc. And, you know, for the Mongols and Turks, horses were not the elite. Mm. All the soldiers, the Alps, all used to ride horses. Everybody mm. had a horse. It was just their way of fighting, and we forgot our way of fighting. We we misdiagnosed the problem, and instead of refining our infantry, Mind you, at the same time that these invasions are happening, Britain is not conducive to producing horses. Mm. Whereas France, there's a very easy supply of horses from the Pannonian plains in uh, Hungary and things like that. Plus, you have the French meadows where you can grow horses and things. When the Hundred Years' Wars, roughly the same time as Khiljis and Tughlaqs happens, when Britain invades France, Notice what happens at the Battle of Crecy and again, 100 years later, at the Battle of Agincourt. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: It's French heavy cavalry charging against British infantry and British bows and arrows. Because the British understood, if you don't have horses, you do the best. You fight as good as you can with what you have. Don't focus on wasting your money on shit that you can't use. And in both Cressy and in Agincourt, the English longbowmen just decimate the French. I, I think people don't realize what happens at Cressy. The entire French nobility is just wiped out. That is what infantry can do to cavalry if it wants. But that's yeah, because too. the British didn't come from an inferiority complex, there wasn't that loss of confidence. How did Odisha manage to hold out so long against the Muslims? Why Odisha? Think about it. Because it's a very wet, rough, uh, uh, soft soil area, heavily densely forested. Horses not suited for cavalry. So all the Odia kings they choose infantry tactics. Hmm.
0: Yep.
1: Right. So it depends. Your tactics depend. Now, the problem is we never accumulate the kind of systematic thought that the ancient Romans and the Byzantines put into studying military strategy and passing on those lessons we never put in. Also remember, when the Turks come in, when the Muslim Turks come in, we shouldn't include the Shakas and the Hunas in this. When the Muslim Turks come in, India is completely fragmented, but there is also no identity that binds all these different kingdoms. Mm -hmm. So when Mohammed Ghori, uh, sorry, Ghazni, I keep confusing Ghazni and Ghori, sorry. If I've done that, I apologize. The earlier one was Ghazni. When yes. Ghazni comes and sacks the Jyotirlinga at Somnath,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. great Shiva Bhakta, Rajendra Chora, mm-hmm. feels absolutely no pangs. He's completely unconcerned. Instead, he's preparing for a naval expedition to go sack Sri Vijaya. Go over to Indonesia mm-hmm. and sack Indonesia and Malaysia. So, mm-hmm. Also, you know that, and this is the problem in India. You see this even today, where se- so-called secular Indians in America, Democrat voters in India, will support Audrey Trushki mm-hmm. when she goes and bullies Hindus.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Tell yep. me how different in context is the Chora, from your Democrat voting, uh, Congress voting American Hindus in that
0: sense. Yeah, no, actually, uh, in a way, there is a, a lack of strategic uh, unity where we will deal with our issues within ourselves. But when somebody from outside comes, that, that I think there is a dilution of the insider-outsider dichotomy, which comes with assimilating and pluralistic cultures.
1: Exactly. Now, now understand the problem out here. On one hand, this is when caste is being solidified and the ban on travel comes about. You know, yeh log hai, we cannot mix with them. Mm-hmm. On the other, you don't even want to protect your own people against mlechas. This is the clearest sign that you have that these, you know, these doctrines of caste and purity and things, they were not even they were not evenly applied, they were not evenly seen because intermarriage also started very early yes right you look at the last photos of uh, uh, Bahadur Shah Zafar and his son uh, who died in Burma he is you uh, Such a bold round. There is a calling here. And here I am, a Madrasi, supposed a Dravidian, who's ten shades fairer to you, a bloody North Indian Aryan.
0: Uh, you have to do that.
1: Look look at the idiocy of the narratives we get in school. This is the caliber of your historians in this country. They're incapable of doing a complex study of these things because they they just don't do interdisciplinary shit. So what you now have is you have complex stuff. This primacy of the horse intrinsically linked with caste An inferiority complex that sets in, which reinforces. It doubles down on the fact that you need a horse. And on top of that, complete fragmentation. The Turk understood he was a Turk, or at least he understood he was a Muslim, and you will never be a Muslim. Mm But the Hindu couldn't see that difference between Muslim and Hindu. And it lasts so late that even Shivaji doesn't see that difference. You know that let that famous re- letter he writes to Aurangzeb, he actually prefaces it saying in the Quran it says, Rabul Alameen, not Rabul Muslimin. So isn't he the God of all men? Don't we worship the same God? So you know, Shivaji also did some of this
0: Ganga Jamuni Tehzeeb thing. But, but, uh, okay, let me push back here. Could that be strategic uh, strategic planning, part of Shivaji trying to soften him up? It could be. But remember, Shivaji was an incredibly tolerant ruler.
1: Right? He was extremely meritocratic in his promotions. He did not. He wasn't a bigot. (laughs) The Mughals were fundamentally bigots through and through. Because when you have a supremacist ideology, it makes you a bigot. That was very common for the time. And it's so, you know, for me, on one hand, it's exasperating that Shivaji wasn't a bigot. And on the other hand, I'm very proud that we retained, that Shivaji stayed straight true to what Hinduism is about. Yeah. I don't like him for it. But on the other hand, you can't help but admire him for it.
0: Yeah, so Abhijit, I want to come here just to add. yeah, so just give me a minute. Uh, I just want to add over here because a lot of people will question you on your claim of the horse. So I just want to give it a religious sanction. So anybody who's read the Rigveda, basically most of the horse mentions are in the new Rigveda. For the people who don't understand, the new Rigveda is the latter books, the the new Mandalas. And uh, uh, as you see, the horse is given a lot of importance in the Rigveda when it starts coming because and the clear uh, clear reason why it's given a lot of importance in the Rigveda is because a it was rare. And because it was so rare that uh, the Ashwameda Yagya is that. And uh, lo and behold, uh, if people still do not buy it, I, I want to tell you a little uh, part from the Ramayana where, you know, there is a small incident where, uh, you know, Lakshmana is having a conversation with someone. And there are a couple of lines, which is very interesting. So Lakshmana spoke to him. Uh, the hymn here is... Uh, uh, Sugriva, when he's pissed off and he's going to Sugriva about why have you not fulfilled the promise. So there is just one line where Lakshmana tells him falsehood is tantamount to killing 100 horses. That's okay. This is the interesting part falsehood is tantamount to killing 1000 cows. Now what is so interesting in this line here is that Lakshmana clearly differentiates between 100 horses and a thousand cows. So the value of the horse is far more in terms of the cow. So what you're saying is even sanctioned in our religious text. So before people uh, go after you and I, it's clearly mentioned in the Ramayana too. So there is a clear case where the horse is given a very elite status in Indian society from an anthropological and a sociological perspective. So I just wanted to put it out over there so that, you know, people be like, are you books. the horse was rare in India. And because it was rare, it was kind of fetishized in India. So that fetish comes from that. And it is clearly visible in our religious text.
1: Right. Now, the next thing that happens is technology. You know, the earliest mention we have of gunpowder guns uh, is in 1270 during the uh, Mongol invasions of uh, Japan. We actually have examples of these guns okay the first example we have uh, well we know kutuz had a gun and it was some kind uh sorry uh, by had a gun and it was some kind of a one seen as a wonder weapon at that point of time by 1284 we have the first mention of a gun in italy By the Battle of Crecy in 1300 and something, you know, where the British infantry, where the English infantry defeated, well, technically the Welsh longbowmen defeat the French cavalry. The British had about 100 guns. And this is where, very curiously, churches provide the lead in Europe taking the lead on gun technology. Do you know why? Church bells. There was a competition throughout Europe that church bells should become bigger and better and you know it was a matter of pride key how high your church tower will be and how big will be the bell that gets hoisted on top And so the so the metallurgy went on getting better and better to serve religious needs and the earliest gun manufacturers were bell manufacturers because it's the same technology that gets used in making guns. By 1400, Europe is so far ahead in gun technology, it's not even funny, right? And the great revolution, it was seen as the first revolution in military affairs is when French King Henry invades Italy, he makes guns to horse carts. And so he starts off mobile artillery And that then brings about the European Fort Revolution, where instead of straight walls, you go in for star forts. Now, if you look at straight walls, imagine my Takla, sir, is the enemy. This is the defense. If you're attacking, you're climbing up the wall. I have to look down and throw things at you. And all the while, the enemy is shooting arrows and catapults at me. Okay. A star fort, what does it do? It's like this. So this is, say, one star like this and one star like this. Like so. uh, Sorry. Like so. If this wall is being attacked by outsiders, this wall hits the attackers with arrows in the back. right? While being completely undercover. So, it revolutionizes fort building in the 1400s in Europe. And then what happens is forts, instead of becoming high, become shorter with more prongs like this. And they become much thicker to avoid breaching and especially because of defense against guns. Because guns could bring down a fort like that. Now, You come to India, Battle of Talikota Kabhuatha, 1500
0: and what? I think 1530. Something like that. I think so. You are so
1: divorced from the outside world, the Vijayanagar military still hasn't decided on the utility of cannons. It still hasn't even decided on the utility of pairing cannons to horse carts. They had muskets. They had muskets. There was a large scale uh, musket duel and things, but it it wasn't really uh, uh, this thing. And so so muskets were there but large guns are not and even the bahamani army sorry the combined uh, forces of uh, uh, bahamani golconda etc etc they use a absolutely useless inutile cannon called the Maidane jung which is so bloody big you just can't use it and you constantly Fail to develop artillery tactics. Babur wins the Battle of Panipat against the Lodis using artillery, and again, Ahmad Shah Abdali defeats your uh, 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 Marathas using mobile artillery. Or to be all the way from fifteen hundred from the Battle of Talikota to seventeen hundred. You people learn nothing. There is no absorption of military knowledge, no transmission of military knowledge, no historical transmission of military knowledge. And keep scratching your balls, doing nothing while they produce cannonballs. And this becomes a problem. Now notice why is it that local Turks are not able to fend off external Turks? Why does... Tughlaq fail against uh, uh, Timur? Why does the Mongol Empire, uh, Mughal Empire fail against Nadir Shah? Again, your cavalry focus, Mughal Empire, you're not producing cavalry. Your military tactics are all inherited Turkic cavalry military tactics. But you can't import those horses anymore because Timur has now put in export controls for horses from Central Asia. Nadir Shah has blocked off your access to Central Asia. You can't get horses. You don't even fence yourself against export controls in those days. Now you understand why I'm telling you there are lessons here to be learned. The Indian quest for this LCA and indigenization and all that shit is a repeat of the same story as our completely bloody useless counterproductive quest for the Indian horse for 1,000 years. And by Indians, I mean, Turks who became Indians also, they were also obsessed with this shit. You fight with what you have and when you can't indigenize something, you shift on to the next thing. Of course, in this particular case, the indigenization has been due to a lack of... Under- Again, it's the same thing. We're asking the wrong questions. Why are we not indigenizing? Arms lobby. ne sabotage karke hai. That is the same shit that those kings who went on losing battles against the Turks used to say. Internal conspiracy. You don't want to look at the fact that your industrial setup and your project management is not a mirror image of the West. So you can't duplicate that product here, boss, just like you could duplicate the horse in India. Mm-hmm. And the transmission of knowledge is so bad. That we still don't get it. That same thousand-year horse mistake is happening now with the LCA. You you try to indigenize, na? पहले तुमने NAT लेके हाल मारुत बनाया था, नहीं हुआ. फिर Mk21 लेके you try to indigenize it. उसके उसका भी कोई indigenous plane नहीं निकला. फिर jaguar का तुमने किया, Mk27 का किया, उसका भी कुछ नहीं हुआ. फिर sukhoi ka kiya, and we were given big promises. I I I wasn't uh, very uh, I wasn't alive when Uh, Jaguar and uh, 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 MiG uh, licenses were taken, but I was alive when, uh, and uh, uh, cognitive when uh, Sukhoi licenses were taken. We were promised it will be 100% indigenous. Where is the indigenous Sukhoi? Why is China able to take 40 Sukhois, reverse engineer it and make that exact carbon copy of the Sukhoi, but India is not? Because your industrial thing doesn't match up. And you want to blame everything except that. You want to see conspiracy theories where none exist. Mm-hmm. So, all these things, you know, this Indians viewing foreigners as okay and Indians as their biggest enemy. Which is kind of the story of Amarapali and the Lichavi confederacy as well. There's so many layers to Indian mythology which you know apply to reality as we know it today. There are so many of those lessons we just we, we ask the wrong questions, we learn the wrong lessons and this is why we're always going to be a dunce third
0: world shithole. All right now let me go on to some questions because a lot of them are related uh, anyway. So let me start uh, I don't know where to start. So, um, yeah, so this is an interesting question. Was the decline of science and technology in India only due to the Turkic invasions or there are other factors? I think we have already touched on some of it. Or did any region except Kerala continue with the scientific uh, tradition during medieval period? Um, uh, See,
1: science also, uh, science is a product of urbanization. Mm-hmm. right complex science is a product of urbanization once you start deurbanizing, mm-hmm. it it becomes uh, uh your science gets ossified at that point you know as my friend mm-hmm. Sushant Sarin says that in 700 AD we were so taken in by our discovery of the zero that we decide to collectively reduce ourselves to zero <laughs>
0: that was the last
1: great Indian invention mm-hmm. uh so De-urbanization has an effect. But look, the Turkic mismanagement of the economy played a very mm-hmm. important role. You, you look at how short these dynasties are, are boss. They're at like 20, mm-hmm. 30, 40 years. Some of them last about 70 years most. That isn't a stable dynasty. Mm-hmm. You look at the coinage from the period. The value of copper in the coin, gold in the coin, silver in the coin changes year to year mm-hmm. that is not the sign of a stable economy the longest period in the entire delhi sultanate where you have a stable metal content is during Alaudin khilji and that wasn't because of good economics he was actually a terrible economist it's just that he was a very good at war he used to go plunder 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 destroy other people's economy take their surpluses bring it home and supplement the silver, uh, copper and gold content in coins. Mm-hmm. All so right. understand so, what okay. we are talking about at the beginning of this podcast. Yeah. The rauben shaft. Yeah. Yeah. I got it. Achha, there's so this now... very irritating question. Vaibhav Tanwar. One second. One second. You know, this is the kind of shit that irritates me. Vaibhav Tanwar. We started reading good quality horses after the Turkic invasion. No, we did not. If you don't know about a subject, don't talk about it. We absolutely did not. The Indian horse originates sometime in the 19th century. We weren't able to domesticate a horse till the 19th century. All right. After, so, after, after cavalry becomes irrelevant in the battlefield.
0: All right. So, okay, tell me this now. Uh, where did the question go? Now I'm confused. OK, so somebody has asked in the history, you find nomads like Mongols and Turks destroying a well-advanced civilized uh, culture like China and Iran. Uh, so does it prove that a society that has a mindset of expansionism is in a way better fit to survive?
1: Yes and no. Uh- Persia was an expansionist society. Mm -hmm. Rome was an expansionist society. And, you know, we have the concept of the third. I think the Roman Empire lasted in different forms for the longest. They were flexible Mm -hmm. enough to, you know, swap religions, but continue as the Roman Empire, first as Rome, then as the Eastern and Western Roman Empire, and then as uh, 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 the Byzantine Empire. So imagine starting in about 100, 150 B.C., and lasting right up to 1,450 watt when Constantinople
0: falls. I am not good That's with this. You, I got the Talikota date wrong too. That was 1,565. 65, I saw in the comments, yeah.
1: So imagine lasting for 1,500 years. Mm-hmm. That's long-lasting. Yes. But then look at... Uh, um, the Turkic dynasties in India, they were expansionist. So why were they so unstable? Why did they last for such a short time? Hmm. It, it's we still don't understand what makes empires last long. It's usually a coming together of a lot of circumstances. Remember, Timur wiped out the Ottoman Empire. He captured the Ottoman Sultan, Bayazit, took him mm-hmm. in chains back to Samarkand, and he died in Samarkand in chains. But the Ottomans came back like nobody's business. In, in uh, 40 years, 40, 50 years after they defeated the Battle of Ankara, in what, 1402? Uh in 1453, literally 51 years, thank you, Natal Kumar, 1453, 50 years after their state is wiped out by Timur, they capture Constantinople.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And they almost recreate the Roman Empire. They're a very significant, boss. So mm-hmm. why is it that Indian dynasties just collapse and the Ottoman Empire has these two these things. Why does the Roman Empire continue so long? We don't know. It's I haven't gone into this. Let's see. I mean, I don't know.
0: All right. So uh, you once said the it was the British who destroyed the Mughal noble rule and that this persisted even during the Marathas. Can you elaborate on that a bit?
1: I wouldn't have said that, boss.
0: I don't know. Somebody has asked this you're question misinterpreting that you're
1: what I said. I think you're misinterpreting what I said. It was the Marathas who defeated the Mughals. Yeah. Remember when the British took over, India was the vast majority of the Indian subcontinent was back in Hindu hands.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, almost two-thirds
1: of India of, of the subcontinent was back in Hindu hands. So I wouldn't have said that.
0: All right. So, all right. I'm just trying to find, okay, somebody has asked uh, what uh, today, what you spoke, was it a part of your PhD thesis?
1: Sorry, you broke up.
0: So today, the topic that you're covering today, uh, that we are covering today, was any of it part of your PhD thesis?
1: No, but you know, my PhD thesis actually plays into it because my PhD thesis is why do Indian hardware purchases not translate into operational gains? Mm-hmm. Okay. That is to say, why do we keep purchasing stuff? And we never seem to use it as effectively as the original user does. And a lot of it, you know, it, because I was forced to read a lot about historicity of this subject, and create other, uh, uh, you know, explore other uh, historical instances where similar things had happened. And yes, that played, so my PhD played a role in this. This doesn't play into my PhD, no.
0: Actually, this is a very good question, Abhijit. Somebody has asked this Why did the Turks adopt the Hanafi school of Islam? which is very in, uh, which is the most tolerant towards infidels if Islam was guiding their expansionist ideology. What do you have to say to that? They did not. Who told you they adopted? See when you use Turks, be clear which Turks. Yeah.
1: If you look at Oghuz Turks, hmm? uh, uh, the Turkomans follow different schools Turkmenistan Uh, Azerbaijan is Shia. In fact, the ruler of Iran even today is a bloody Turk. Ayatollah Khamenei is not Iranian. He's an Azeri. And Azeri Mm -hmm. are Oghuz Turks. Okay. Uh, They're Shia. Mm -hmm. Turkey, the Ottoman Empire adopted Hanafism. Why? Because it Mm -hmm. suited the caliph And it suited his whole, uh, after it becomes, you know, this caliphate. First, it was the inherited doctrine, which they converted to when they were wandering. And second, it also helped them because when you're running a multi-ethnic empire, like the Ottoman Empire, it helps a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, when you don't want to be a bigot, when you want to temper down your bigotry, the jurisprudence gives you enough room to do it. Unlike Wahhabi jurisprudence that would not allow, well, Salafi, Salafi jurisprudence, which would not allow you to do it. Second, remember the big fight at that point were within Sunnism was between the Hanafi and the Salafi. Mm-hmm. Uh, and specifically, what is the main thing? See, the Hanbali school within Salafism, which is the most popular, from which Wahhabism and everything come about. Mm-hmm. Why did the Hanbali school becomes so popular who is the founder of the Hanbali school Ibn Taymiyyah and he he comes up with this notion of takfir taken from kafir but takfir why because he sees all these Turks and Mongols he's writing remember after the Mongols uh, sack uh, uh, Baghdad Mm? Mm -hmm.
0: 1257
1: I think uh Or 1258. So he he sees these people as lesser Muslims, that racism creeps into Islam, that a native Arab interpretation will always Mm -hmm. be superior to a non-Arab interpretation. Mm -hmm. And so almost in a counter reaction, it becomes easier for and more to their self-image and to the, for their self-respect, for them to choose the Hanafi school than to choose the Salafi school. It's circumstance. It's not deliberate decision. Just like the other Turkomans, the uh, uh, Safwits accidentally were born Shia, and they became great. Right. So even within the Turkomans, you have different schools, Karluk's, Karlukids, different Kipchaks, different. Everything is different. There's no uniform Turkic adherence to the Hanafi school.
0: All right. So I have a couple of more questions. So this is actually we have kind of dealt with it. So I'll I'll still read it. I think it kind of you did cover it when you were talking about even modern technology in this Vishwaguru self-image which focuses on idealism and grandeur but ignores problems at hand does it result in always hitting a moving target without any results and uh, is such ineffectiveness uh, a basically a cultural trait on a sign in a significant level of our history i think we covered this but in a way it does make sense right if Vishwaguru
1: not vista guru i'm assuming Vishwaguru self-image which focuses on Yeah, look, we're always about this. We're always about this. You know, for example, when you're talking about uh, uh, the protein deficiency in India, there is no debate on protein deficiency in India. There is only a debate on if Akshay Patra should be serving eggs in India. The student and the protein deficiency be damned. So we're focusing on this grandeur. We're essentially a snake oil salesman that way. You're not focusing on the ways and means, you're focusing on the marketing Mm pitch.
0: All right, then suggest scholarly readings on Indian history.
1: You know, the surprising thing is I, there is no scholarly reading on Indian history, boss. You have to read hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of journal articles, not about India to understand India. Because even today, every description of industrialization in pre-British India follows that idiot Irfan Habib's model, which talks about scale and not about the application of chemical energy to the production process. Mm -hmm. Industrialization, the accepted definition of industrialization is the application of chemical energy to the production process, not the fact that you ran a sweatshop full of 500,000 slaves. That's not industrialization.
0: Hmm. so you know you have to read
1: some other realize that irfan habib and his entire brood and indeed everybody who writes about indian industrialization gets their fundamental definition wrong so you know read as much as you can what i do is i don't read newspapers i do not i do not have a tv at home i do not subscribe to newspapers i only glance through news websites every now and then What I do is I have an Athena uh, uh, Blackwell, a JSTOR uh, uh, subscription. And every day I read three journal articles, completely diverse. It will be on the food habits of pre-Columbian Patagonians to uh, Siberian art in the Stone Age. You never know where you get information from. The question is, how do you connect the dots? Right, so
0: why, why did the industrial the
1: revolution
0: And the Renaissance happen in Europe and not in Asia. Very good question.
1: There's actually a book about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called Why the West Rules for Now by Ian Morris. Um, yeah. I suggest you look it up. And you combine that with a book that uh, Kushal actually recommended to me, which has become my favorite. So Ian Morris is my all-time favorite history author because he gives you the macro narrative. So recommendation to everyone. Ian Morris, Why the West Rules for Now. And the second is you have to understand how the psychology of the West diverged a thousand years back. And that's uh, Joseph Henrich, Weird People. Yeah. Read that book. See, like I said, the answer to the previous question, you get the answers from different places. It's like military tactics. You should never attack your enemy head on. You always do oblique attack. Even information is a war. And your information comes through oblique angles.
0: All right. If indigenization of fighter deaths that is LCA L- Tejas is a repeat of past blunders, what is the remedy for the same? And how can we solve this in the next decade?
1: So the solution to the Tejas doesn't lie in the Tejas the solution to the tejas lies in your economy and your education char How char panch bar kitne bar it? How kitne planes ko leke domestically produce kiya nat uh, marut banaya mig 21 mig 27 jaguar uh, sukhoi aur kuch tha anyway at least five And fir bhi tum nahi kar paye so the solution is not direct oblique you have to improve your education system. You have to improve your public accountability system or failing that. You give it to the private sector. You have to get out of the socialist mindset.
0: All right. That is so the solution.
1: Private times.
0: Hmm. All right. Are Arish Sharma and Satish Chandra reliable sources of ancient and medieval Indian history?
1: Uh, I might have read them, but the name doesn't strike me. If I had gotten anything from them, their name would have stuck with me. So clearly it didn't. So I don't know.
0: Yeah, so I think we've pretty much uh, covered. OK, I'll just I I wanted to leave this one last question. I can't share it on the screen, Avijit, because it was asked far early in the chat. So this was for both of us. So somebody had asked, who is your favorite Indian king? So I want you to answer this first. I can always answer it later on. My favorite Indian king.
1: Uh, my favorite Indian king is Jesus, our Lord in Christ, anointed by God, the King of Kings. And I hope all you heathen native savages embrace our Lord in Christ. He's the uh, King of India, He's the King of Kings.
0: Uh, you had to do that. Well, I, I'll give you my answer. Uh, okay, serious think... answer.
1: Okay, serious answer. Can I get the serious answer now? Yeah, there. <laughs> uh, can I get two choices?
0: Yeah, sure.
1: Uh, one would be Shivaji, and the second would be uh, Chandragupta Maurya.
0: Yeah. So so in my case, I don't have two choices. I just have one choice. And I'll explain my, rea- my reasoning for that is uh, the reason Shivaji is the greatest Indian king ever was, not only was he brave, he was victorious. And that, I think, is a distinguishing factor between a lot of Indian kings. See, uh, I always give the analogy of this very weird Bollywood movie, China Gate, where there was this villain, Jagira. Who fights with the professor and he kills the professor and then he tells the professor that by professor, tum, tu tum Kamina Pan se hai. What I love about Shivaji was his street smartness. And you know, he'll bend the rules when he had to bend the rules. He would go be, you know, he would go around the Ulta Rasta if he had to defeat someone. Which is why I think in Indian history, Shivaji was the quintessential Indian hero. And he actually taught us the art of winning. How we wish we could learn from him, we never do.
1: See, you have to be brave and be a winner. Nobody has any use for a brave loser. Just like people only remember who, who won the Nobel Prize, they don't care about who was the runner-up for the Nobel Prize. Everybody only remembers the gold medal. Nobody remembers who won the silver medal.
0: Yeah. All right, Abhijit, I, I think uh, we'll wrap up today's discussion. But this is the, by far not going to be the only discussion we're going to do today because I know your internet is also acting up a little bit. So, so let me wrap it up for the day. So, uh, before we wrap today's discussion, any passing comments? No. Vale, vale. Battery vale all right guys so let, let's wrap up today's discussion uh, uh, i tried to take all your questions because a lot of your super chats were basically comments and not questions so so i could not ask them honestly they were just uh, basically agreeing or adding to what abhijit had already mentioned but uh, as always it's always a pleasure to chat with abhijit and uh, i'll try to make this into some sort of a series where abhijit and i you know we pick up weird topics from indian history and uh, yeah, Abhijit have, and I I have one thing in common we both like to look at different uh, aspects of history and analyze them I try to bring in the religious and philosophical angle and Abhijit always brings in the the historical angle and the anthropological angle so I uh, we kind of gel very well together because I can always tell Abhijit what the philosophers said and what the religious text says and Abhijit can always bring in the other side. So, I think it makes a very good combination, and we'll try to do more of these discussions. So, we'll wrap up today's uh, chat, uh, you know, uh, and uh, I'll see you guys next time. So, take care, everyone, and please like the video, subscribe to the channel, share the video, leave your comments, and uh, become a member on Patreon or YouTube or wherever you want to join. Uh, and support the podcast until then take care namaste see you next time bail bail veil veil vetri veil and remember
1: ayodhya to bas janki hai kashi madura baki hai